Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for May the 24th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'm going to be your host today and I'm joined in studio as always by 538's Kyle Wagner. Hey Kyle. Hey Neil. And on the line from Chicago, our fellow sports writer and co-podcaster Chris Herring is back. Hey Chris. Hey, what's going on? Uh, Not much. Good to have you back, man. I appreciate it. Today, we're going to talk, as usual, about the conference finals. Uh, right now, a little bit of an interesting twist in each of these series, uh, with Boston taking the lead over Cleveland, and, of course, with Houston nodding up their series against the mighty Golden State Warriors. But before that, let's briefly talk about, well, football. The NFL announced a rule change Wednesday that prohibits players from kneeling during the national anthem, which is a clear response to the protest against racism started by Colin Kaepernick in 2016 and the subsequent controversy that President Trump inserted himself into last fall. Uh, the NFL took a lot of criticism for silencing its players yesterday. But, Kyle, you were making the point before the show that the NFL's new policy is basically the same one that the NBA has had going back for years. And they've kind of avoided criticism for the most part on that, right? Right. So the big difference is that that policy is in the CBA for the NBA, whereas the NFL owners uh, kind of independently of the the players union uh, put this into place. It was uh, really pushed by the Hawks in that organization, whereas like there are more liberal owners uh, who just, you know, just don't have the same sway as, you know, Bob McNair or Jerry Jones, who you would imagine had a lot to do with uh, with this policy. Uh, You know, so the NFL's uh, new thing is. Oh, the players can stay in the locker room. Uh, the teams themselves will be fined, which that in itself is a mechanism to uh, kind of give teams cover not to sign players they think are risky, such as Eric Reed, who was a very good safety before, you know, uh, he was involved in everything, or Colin Kaepernick, obviously. But but yeah, the NBA has a similar uh, role on the books and just kind of skates on the idea that, oh, we're a more liberal league. We're a more liberal, um, you know, setting in, in many obvious ways. That's true. But on this issue, uh, yeah, like it's it's policy that like you know the NFL's just taken a beating on is very very similar. I mean, yeah, I think Kyle is spot on. That I mean, this is pretty similar. The, the the main difference being, like you said, the CBA technically requires it, and it's something that had been there already in, in kind of the bylaws. Um, but I think the biggest difference here there are two, at least two. One. Um, the NFL has made this a much, much bigger part of their fabric. I mean, literally, you go to a game, which uh, I haven't done in a long time, and they literally blanket the entire football field, and football fields are a big thing, uh, big, wide thing. They blanket the whole field with a flag. Um, you know, there's been conversation and plenty of stuff written about uh, the league's tie to the DOD with regards to, you know, and, and the money that, you know, the league has kind of prompted organizations to pay to be able to honor veterans and people on the field and kind of how a very weird backroom relationship there is with that. And so that's part of it, that the NFL has kind of injected this into the league itself uh, as far as making this important for whatever reason, whether it's monetary, what have you. Um, but secondly, and, and Kyle alluded to this as well, the NBA is a lot more liberal. The NBA has not fined people for not, um, you know, being there, for the anthem or for not, uh, you know, if they turn their back or whatever, they didn't find people for that. They didn't find people for wearing, I can't breathe t-shirts, the league, you know, at best, you know, if you want to call it this, they've kind of turned a blind eye to it. You remember the WNBA issue with some of this stuff as well. They were going to find a team and then decided to back off and say like, we were wrong about this. We apologize. And so 
they they might be uncomfortable with it from a, a monetary standpoint as far as what it means for sponsorships and what have you and for the way the league is talked about for a few days in the news cycle, but they also haven't gone out of their way to find people. If anything, they've avoided doing that because they don't want to come down on the players because the makeup of the league is much, much different. Um, and because they, you know, even yesterday, you, you look at the issue with the Milwaukee Bucks and the, the very strong statement that they put out. One of their players was basically abused by the police. That That's fundamentally different um, than kind of a lot of the stuff that you see in the NFL. And I, I think it speaks to the fact that they are trying to respect their players more than what you see happening in, in the NFL. Right. And the same thing happened in Sacramento, we should say, too, where... Uh... Yeah, Vivek Ranadive and the entire Kings organization just came out in support of like things going on out there. Also, yeah, the protest outside the game uh, during the season where they didn't—they played the game in front of basically not having a crowd. Which I mean, I guess this happened in in baseball too with with the Orioles. But that right. tells you when you're willing to kind of forego that much money and you're more concerned about the way that your players feel and feeling that they're respected and letting that letting that be more important for a day, two days a week, whatever it is, than the idea that if you lose a sponsorship or you lose sponsorships, that's, that's a level of integrity that I don't think anybody in the NFL can even argue that really matches up you know, with the NBA. The NBA has made that more of an issue and, and caring about the well-being of their players and the fact that their players feel like they're being heard as opposed to what you see with the NFL. And I, there is a part of me, too, that wonders – the power structure of the NBA and even the players that are at the top of the union in the NBA, some of the best players in the world, that also is something that kind of stands out to me too as being different from the NFL where a lot of those guys aren't very involved. Uh, you know, God bless J.J. Watt's heart for kind of the stuff he's done and how much he's donated. But um, the best players in the NBA have been so vocal about some of this stuff that I think it kind of puts more pressure on the league to at least hear them out and be willing to hear out what they have to say. Well, do we think that that means that maybe in the next CBA conversation in the NBA that there will be a discussion about maybe rolling back the rule or, or allowing more sort of codified ways to engage in protest, uh, maybe go the opposite direction of what the NFL just did? I'd be surprised uh, for, uh, frankly, the reason that uh, Chris just laid out where uh, a lot of the, the union leadership is uh, like that top level marquee player. Uh, that has uh, more to lose than a lot of the NFL players who have been speaking out. So, like that cuts both ways. Where yes, uh, it it does show a little more uh, from the NBA's ownership that uh, you know the Kings are willing to you know allow uh, just basically full on protests and like not uh, try to you know you know bust that up and do anything, just play the games as they are and say we we hear you. Uh, but at the same time, the NFL players are risking a lot more. They don't have guaranteed contracts. They are. Uh, there are there's actively like really hard to argue blackballing going on, and uh, so this is a step that the NBA players just haven't shown the appetite to uh, kind of be as you know forceful about their protest because you know they're in better dialogue with their ownership. The one exception I would say is uh, so of the the players who you know a few years ago got up and said like hey we'd like to you know be in front of something. Uh, Carmelo Anthony actually has uh, been the most vocal, the most uh, uh, outside of you know really uh, standard scripted you know press events. Uh, 
Carmelo Anthony has uh, shown that. So um, if he gets more involved, even though his, you know, playing stature is diminished, uh, that could move a little bit too. The last thing I would say, though, is that like, and this is like going back to the NFL, uh, the the whole notion of like any of these policies actually meaning anything or actually buying you anything is absurd because this morning we have the quote from the president that says i don't think people should be staying in the locker rooms you have to stand proudly for the national anthem or you shouldn't be playing you shouldn't be there maybe you shouldn't be in the country you should stand proudly for the national anthem. like it's it's never it's, enough yes it's never yeah, gonna you be can enough, never so. really uh you know kind of bargain things down enough to kind of satisfy some people uh, okay, on that note, let's move on to the NBA playoffs and, and the conference finals. But first, let's have a word from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. And something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you will find them. Businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs, and right now, listeners to The Lab can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. One word. ZipRecruiter.com slash The Lab. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, back to the show. Let's start with the Cavs and the Celtics. They played Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals Wednesday night. And stop me if you've heard this one before, the Celtics won at home. Boston's 96-83 to victory gives them a 3-2 to lead going back to Cleveland with a chance to eliminate LeBron James before the NBA Finals for the first time since 2010. Guys, what jumped out to you about Game 5 of this series? LeBron looks tired, man. And, like, he can say he's not tired. He can claim he's not tired. But, like... Uh, that's not the same LeBron that we saw in Game Three for sure, um, and so like we talked uh, before Game, th- we we didn't get a chance to talk after Game Three for Game Four, but LeBron is not coming off four days rest here. He's coming off you know back a couple games in a row where he's just on regular rest, and it showed like it's uh, he's just not doing the same things, like covering the same ground, and. When that's happening, and when J.R. Smith isn't giving you anything, and Corver isn't for whatever reason, uh, so after the game, Ty Lue said that Corver didn't play because the the Celtics declined to play Ojale, which um, is a little baffling. Very odd. Um, but but the there answer. were there were some strange like lineup situations also. But overall, like that's because LeBron isn't at the center of that. And uh, yeah, if the, if that's the case, if LeBron is just uh, worn down, even you know some small percentage uh, that changes, you know, the fabric of the Cavs a lot. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot that stood out to me yesterday that hasn't already stood out to me. I mean, the Cavs just don't have enough viable options outside of LeBron to be less than great. I mean, they've already lost a game in the series where he had a 40-point triple-double. And so Ty Lue having a game where he just basically opts not to play Kyle Korver, who's been, you know, at times the second best Cav in this series, uh, that's odd to me. Uh, didn't really seem to make a lot of sense. And when you're letting the idea of 
Femi Ojale kind of dictate, if that was even the truth, but you let him dictate whether or not you play the best shooter in the whole series, that's a little odd to me. Um, but, you know, it might not have even mattered last night when you look at the fact that LeBron just didn't look energized. And it's hard because, you know, statistically, if you didn't watch the game, you look at his numbers, and it's still LeBron. I mean, he's still putting up better numbers than everyone else on his team. But, again, you, you pretty much need otherworldly performance for him to even hang in the series, particularly when you're playing in Boston. Uh, the other thing that stood out about his line or, you know, the way he looked last night, Cleveland has really struggled when, when LeBron isn't able to play the game without turning it over a whole lot. Uh, they did win the last game with them having seven turnovers, but uh, the idea that he only had five, what was it, five assists and had six turnovers, Boston's turning him over a lot in this series, and I think that speaks to how they can kind of load up on him without having to double all the time, and we talked about that in the series, that you know Cleveland's best hope is that you know maybe Boston screws up every now and then and sends the second person at LeBron. They haven't really had to do that. And again, if LeBron doesn't look energized to where he can just blow past people and at least force help to get a guy like Kevin Love open, to get Corver open when Ty Lue actually decides to play him, uh, they're going to be in trouble. But they need people to step up. That was what you saw in games three and four when it went back to Cleveland. It's what they're going to need in game six to, to have a chance of extending this. It's kind of crazy to me. Like on the one hand, and, uh, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing LeBron get eliminated and just how incredible that is. But on the other hand, it's incredible that we kind of expect for Cleveland to pull this out just because of LeBron because his team is not good. And we've known that for a while, especially the stat heads like us. We, you look at the defensive metrics and you, we've said all day long that teams like this don't, with this sort of makeup, don't make the finals. But it's still pretty jarring to see it, you know, both sides of it. One, that that he's this close to getting knocked out, but two, that we still kind of expect them to at least make a series out of it or, to, you know, to send it to the game seven just because of what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, we all remember the last time LeBron was down 3-2 to the Celtics in the con- was that the conference finals, I think so, uh, where uh, he was obviously on the heat and he came in back with game six, which was probably the best game of his career. Um, it's a different, you know, LeBron at this point, but um, it's hard to write him out. The the weird thing with this is that everything that Chris just said about the offense where, you know, LeBron is uh, counted on to set up Kevin Love, to set up Kyle Korver, to, I mean, you know, they do their, you know, just uh, actually timeout. It is awful watching Kyle Korver and Kevin Love just like do that like little pirouetting like thing. Like I, I know, like Zach Lowe wrote about it recently where you know they have this two man game where they, you know, they're off the ball and they're running around and in like this in the film the film nerd in me like enjoys it because it's like oh yeah this is interesting they're they're doing it but just like watching the game it's lebron just watching two guys like run circles around each other until like one guy like flinches uh that it's it's not it's not fun basketball to watch to me but that is what the cavs are relying on they're relying on like lebron to either set up those guys those guys to get free and lebron just you know whips a pass over uh, on offense but on defense it's the same thing where in that in that game three, LeBron was everywhere. LeBron was uh, just like helping on stuff. He was covering a ton of ground, like a lot, like you used to see when LeBron was, you know, uh, getting votes for Defensive Player of the Year. And that's what created like Kyle Korver blocking Jalen Brown three times. It's what created because the the cat, the Celtics were forced into ISO ball. The for- Celtic, which is like not really what they play. It's not really what they're good at. Um, in this last game, you saw a little bit of that, uh, but the Celtics kind of got it figured out. So 
the Cavs had a few wrinkles where they would send a late double. Like you remember that one play with Horford on the right baseline. Um, and he's isoing, isoing, and Nance is right there, but he, he comes with the late double, the delayed double, and that threw it off. And, you know, it resulted in a turnover. Those were few. For the most part, the Celtics were able to, you know, just like get a switch they wanted, you know, kind of iso up on, you know, who they wanted and, you know, make a play happen from there. Uh, they just, you know, got a couple more looks at it because LeBron just didn't have the same energy, wasn't, you know, helping the same way that he was in those previous games. Yeah. And, and, you know, to move it to talk about the Celtics, the, the thing everyone is talking about is this big split between home and road, which does seem to sort of have a lot of bearing on how the series might go in the end, because they do have the, you know, the home court for game seven, that all important, uh, card that they can play. But the next game, in which they could potentially sort of leave the door open for LeBron is in Cleveland. So why why are the Celtics so good at home, and why are they have they not been able to kind of sustain that on the road in these playoffs? I wish I had an answer for that. I mean, I you know we we are so um, numbers driven in a lot of what we do, but you know I'd love to rely on interviews and to talk to guys. And I've been like, for years that spent time talking to players about the dynamic of home versus road, it's obvious. I mean, I, I was telling Neil before we started the podcast today, I teach a, a grad school journalism class at Northwestern, and we took the kids that we teach to uh, a WNBA game yesterday. And it was one of those morning games where, you know, the WNBA struggles with attendance. They bring in thousands of kids from the public schools and give them free tickets. And we were literally watching the officials plug their ears during timeouts when they would put, you know, get louder on the Jumbotron because – you got these kids shrieking in the, in the stands. And so there's that element where it's just louder. And so your concentration is thrown off. But beyond that, I mean, these are professionals that have played in home and road environments their whole life, you know, high school, college, definitely at the pro level. Um, maybe there's more of a swing because these guys are so young and, you know, the, the comfort level of playing at home, the fans that are cheering for you or where you can hear your calls a little bit better. Um, but, you know, I could – probably understand it better in something like football where you actually have to rely on being able to hear your quarterback. I don't, I can't make sense of it with this Celtics team, how much better they are at home than they are on the road, because none of these games have even been close. Me and Neil were talking about that too. They're not even, they can't be touched at home. And that, that's kind of the, the difference is you would at least expect them to be competitive when they play on the road and play close games because of how dominant they've been at home. But that just hasn't been the case. Yeah. A lot of the theories are, um, so like one, just the, the crowd influence on referees and, um, uh, by sport that changes, but the NBA like is, is definitely affected by, by that. Uh, some of it is the, the difference in like depth perception from arena to arena. And there are some players who play, who shoot better at, uh, on the road than at home because they just really don't like the way that their home arenas are set up. Uh, but the strange thing with the Celtics team is it isn't, down to like you know getting calls or not getting calls it isn't down to making shots or not making shots it's down to just they look incompetent on the road on offense they can't get a play going they can't get the ball inbounded they can't you know enter the ball into the post in a way that just doesn't make sense for how sharp they are at other times so like i mean like chris said like i wish i had an answer but like the answers that we have for the general home road splits um, in the way that like you know team sports work, in the way that you know uh, you know spectators uh, sports work, the way that uh, the NBA works, that's not even covering the way that this team is is messing up on the road. Um, 
And so, so yeah, I, I, I have nothing to tell you. I, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of defy explanation. And, you know, maybe it's one of those cases where, you know, we kind of, as as really avid in the weeds NBA followers, we kind of, you know, want to dig into the explanations and, you know, kind of figure out what happened in every single game. And maybe in the big picture, you know, there's there was always going to be a team that had like a really extreme home road split just by chance alone uh, in some ways. And, you know, that can propel you pretty far if you're a two seed in the playoffs. Winning all of your home games means that by definition, you're winning a lot of series, uh, even when things kind of come down to a game seven, especially when things come down to a game seven. So it could just be, you know, this is the one team that shows that uh, really exaggerated home versus road split. And, you know, maybe like as much by chance as anything else. But, you know, that you, you can't take away credit at the same time from the effort that was given by the Celtics, especially guys like Marcus Morris, you know, on uh, LeBron James and, and, you know, the crazy intensity. Uh, he's like yelling at guys, start you know, kind of starting fights and things like that. Uh, and, and, uh, the Celtics do seem to have like an extra level of energy when they're at home. Uh, so yeah, I mean, a lot of that does also probably just come down to they're a young team. But um, like on that same notion, uh, the young players have also just been absurdly good. So and they have all season just gotten better in ways that uh, we were looking for them. Like and we're repeating ourselves, but um, Tatum and Brown were just not good driving to the rim early in the year. They, like the numbers were awful, and now they're extremely good. They're they're near the top of the league in the playoffs on on those plays. And like th- this is typically. Uh, growth that happens between seasons it's happening during the season and Tatum especially I mean he's he's given interviews about Kobe um, you know being a big influence but I mean even before that like you could see the obvious influence in the footwork in the in the jumper and like the ways that he's moving around and like so he had 24 last night um, and they were you know allowed 24 you know as opposed to you know, the quiet 30 or whatever uh, where it seems like and I actually haven't gone into to look at this but uh, all so many of those points that you got were at like high leverage moments of the game where it looked like the the Cavs were going on a run or like whatever, and so and he would just you know come up with a layup, come up with a you know, play, and uh, so like you look up and like late in the fourth, and it's like oh he's got twenty one points, he's got twenty four points. It seemed like more because he had such like an influence on the game. And here's one stat uh, before we you know get off him by uh, Darren Hartwell of uh, NESN. Uh, during the regular season, so Tatum taken number three, uh, famously by Danny Ainge, who, you know, uh, did his Danny Ainge things. Uh, Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball combined for 528 points combined, um, in the regular season. Uh, Tatum has 312 in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. It, it, they're never really going to be able to kind of avoid those comparisons, the, the Lakers and the Sixers, uh, if Tatum kind of continues going on this trajectory. Uh, so just one last thing before we wrap up this talk about this series. Uh, what can we expect out of the Cavs going into game six? I, I know they're up against elimination potentially, and LeBron teams have traditionally uh, done quite well when they were facing elimination. I think they're 10 and three under that situation in the last, uh, five playoffs. Uh, and at the same time, this is one of the most unpredictable teams I think we've seen, even, even by the standards of, uh, these sort of teams that show they can flip the switch on and off at will that we've sometimes seen in the playoffs in recent years. This Cavs team seems to be sort of on another level even from that. So, Chris, what are you looking for out of the Cavs in this? Is it just as simple as LeBron being more rested and hoping that his role players knock down some shots around him? 
but here's the thing, Neil. I mean, he's not going to be more rested, and that's that's kind of the problem here too. You know, I've seen different people raising this question. You, you know, we had that long layoff last week um, from when the teams finished their games, like in the middle of the week, early part of last week, to then not playing again until the weekend. And you know, basketball Twitter was like on its deathbed because they're like, we really have to go three days without a game. Um, but how much nicer it would be if maybe you'd had them play every other night at the beginning of those series and then had the ability to stretch out the games now um, that they could have rest at the back end of the series. Now, obviously, you know, maybe if you'd had it like that, you wouldn't have the series as close as they are now. Maybe it would have played out differently. But you don't want to see LeBron going into, you know, when he's made seven straight finals and pushing for an eighth, you don't want to see him like laboring into game six and game seven of that series uh, because that's when the most is on the line. And so, but no, because of that, because it's just a one day rest, I don't think you can just rely on the fact that he's going to have it. I I, I would assume he will because you don't really bet against LeBron personally, especially when he's in an elimination scenario um, and he's at home, but I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I don't trust his team. I didn't even really trust his team to get it done against Indiana and that game seven against Indiana was very close. Uh, and that was a situation where um, they did have home court advantage. But that game was close. And Indiana could have potentially won that series had a, you know, a thing or two gone differently uh, as far as calls, as far as last-second shots and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I mean, I truthfully, the, the Celtics have impressed me. And the fact that they've got one more game at home, no matter how this plays out, yes, that would be a huge pressure situation. But they had a game seven earlier in this postseason and came out pretty well, obviously, on the winning side of it. So I, I still kind of trust Boston to get it done. You know, I think Cleveland will find a way to win game six. I, I would assume LeBron will play his butt off like he generally always does. I think he's got the highest scoring average in league history in game seven if it gets there. Um, but it's a certain point you can't just trust him to just get it done every single time, especially with the deficiencies on that roster. But they need to play Corver more. I think you, you have to have another shooter out there with them. And using Ojale as a, as a reason not to is just foolish. Yeah, for me, uh, the things to look for from the Cavs are one more Corver. Just he has to play, and if, if you have to take minutes away from Gr, if you have to start instead of Gr, uh, that just has to happen. Gr hasn't given you really anything. Um, I would expect, uh, I would hope for more minutes from Nance. I would think they really need to get away from the lineups where they don't have uh, Love or LeBron on the floor. Uh, they should be playing the the love at center lineups more. I'm saying like you know they play Tristan more, play Nance more, but also play the lineup. But like that's what works for them. Like they've gotten good minutes out of Nance, they've gotten uh, very good minutes out of Tristan, but also uh, throughout the entire season, the love at center lineups have just been effective for them, and they need to you know really get to, into what's working for them. I would say I philosophically disagree with the idea that. Uh, Team should be uh, able to to rest up and you know be at their full selves because this is a generational thing where when LeBron was on the Heat and you know crashing into the the aged Celtics, uh, no one really cared that you know Paul Pierce and uh, and KG were you know dog tired and <laughs> trying to keep up with him. Like this is an advantage that you have early. This is an advantage that the Celtics have now, being so young and you know just running the Cavs off the court. And it's one that they will suffer, uh, you know, if they stay together and you know are still succeeding late in their careers. Yeah. That's- that's, that's a very big picture take, Kyle, on on uh, the the arc of these teams. But in the short term, at least, according to the Carmelo model at five thirty eight, the Celtics have a seventy three percent chance of closing this series out. 
Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the Western Conference Final, which the Rockets knotted up at two games apiece with their 95-92 to win over the Warriors on Tuesday night. And guys, the way that game started, uh, the Warriors looked like they were going to run the Rockets completely off the court. They were at home. They had won 16 consecutive games at home. And they were, it seemed like they were just easily on the precipice of going up 3-1. The Rockets deserve a tremendous amount of credit for staying in that game, sticking around, and then gutting it out at the end. And their defense shut down the Warriors down the stretch of that game. And I think the Warriors also kind of ran out of gas, uh, also at the end of that game. But, uh, what, what were you guys thinking when you, when you saw the way Houston kind of came back? Did that change some of the things that we've talked about already in this series about Golden State being heavy favorites and, you know, clearly the better team and Houston, you know, Chris Paul not being able to make things happen? Uh, th- those narratives seem to kind of flip all in sort of the fourth quarter of that game. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes is the answer to that. So, I mean, and yes is the answer to the beginning of that, too, where uh, in my group text with, you know, my knucklehead friends, I, uh, after Steph hit the, the, you know, quick release three to go up five nothing, I, t- I, t- I was like, yeah, game over. Uh, this, if this is going to be a game like that, then, you know, it's game over. And it looked like that for a while. Uh, the cell, the Rockets didn't, weren't on the board until like five or six minutes were played. Uh, but yeah, CP all of a sudden was beating his man clean off the dribble. Uh, the Rockets were able to, to lock in on defense in a way that we haven't seen in a while. And a big reason for that was Mike D'Antoni went to a Mike D'Antoni rotation and he cut Mbamute out of the rotation. Uh, Anderson is still out of the rotation. And so they played seven men. Uh, and, uh, Joe Green, uh, played what well, I think it was 13 minutes. Uh, and so yeah. That is a Mike D'Antoni rotation, and that will win you a game. That will win you a few games. But, I mean, I'm it, in the past, it has worn down teams. In the past, like we've seen, uh, his teams not go to the finals because, you know, it's, it's hard to play an entire playoffs like that. They've played more players up to this point, so maybe it's not quite as big of a concern. But you've also got Chris and James, who are two players who have, you know, worn down, not just in this series, but, like, in, in their histories in the playoffs. So... Um, you know, asking like the way they came back. Well, yes, like the way they came back, like their quality of play made me, you know, kind of reconsider things. But the way they came back with, you know, the players they were playing and how long they were playing them. Yeah, I've got questions about that, too. Yeah. 85 combined minutes for Harden and Paul in that game for when? Yeah. I mean, so here's where it becomes interesting, because I, I totally agree with Kyle on that. Uh, and we have seen that, especially with those Suns team, that D'Antoni can kind of ride his horses a little bit too much um, and crack the whip a little bit too much. Um, what becomes interesting here, especially as you look at, at game, what is it, game five tonight, uh, the fact that the Warriors may not really be able to go totally deep either. That's something that they've had the luxury of doing for years, um, you know, and the amount of depth that they've had at times, particularly with their ball handlers, being able to use Iguodala, obviously Draymond Green, uh, but all of a sudden you look up, Iguodala is still questionable. And the fact that Clay Thompson, after injuring his knee and looking horrible for the majority of game four, the fact that he is questionable. So if you actually take those two guys out, or even if just one of them is there and is not full strength uh, and can't give you 35, 40 minutes, all of a sudden it's not that the Warriors don't have depth. It's that their, their wing depth all of a sudden kind of takes a big hit. Uh, particularly if someone like Livingston doesn't play well, which is it's once or twice in the series already, uh, you, you're losing serious depth here because of all the, you know, the issues that you've had at specific positions. And I think that was actually part of the problem 
and I, I wrote about this in my story earlier in the week, Durant was taking such difficult shots, even for him. Uh, he, he can make them, but basically I think the third worst sh- shot profile he'd had all season was doing a lot of one-on-one stuff, just taking turnaround fadeaways the second he would catch the ball from 19, 20 feet away. Bad shots. And a lot of what Steph was doing, you know, it looked great in the third quarter, but it was still really ISO-based for the most part. Um, and I think Tom Haberstroh, a former ESPNer, uh, wrote that, you know, they've had more than 20 isolation possessions per game in this series, whereas they were having like seven or eight of them in the first two series of the playoffs per game. And so they've kind of gone so far outside of what they normally do to where it looks like it's thrown off their rhythm. Uh, the, the Rockets deserve a ton of credit because they couldn't even stop the ISOs in game one. You remember how great Durant looked at the beginning of the series. Uh, so they deserve a ton of credit for kind of staying on their assignments as well as they have. Harden looked great on defense at moments in the last game, too. He deserves credit for that. But the Warriors just have to get back to doing what they do as best they can, which is moving the ball. They shouldn't be trying to beat Houston with Houston's style of play because their advantage, they can wear Houston down defensively, especially with the minutes these Rockets players are playing if they just move the ball and force Houston into rotation. You don't do that as much when you're playing one-on-one, and I think they got too far removed from their own style of play in Game 4. So, yeah, let's talk about Game 5 then, because now the series has shifted back. Houston will be at home, and they also got home court advantage back, which they had sort of promptly thrown away at the beginning of this series. Uh, Do we think Houston can kind of sustain? I know that you, Kyle, had just mentioned that Mike D'Antoni basically shortened his rotation and is relying a lot on his stars, even by the standards of a team this deep into the playoffs. Uh, is that something where you can kind of ask that of these guys uh, for just a few more games and try to like, you know, cross the finish line, get into the finals, see what happens? Or uh, is it was that a one-time ask and they really are going to have to sort of figure out a different solution going forward? I don't see them going that direction. Typically, Mike D'Antoni, once you fall out of favor, uh, it's it's tough to get back into that rotation, especially in the playoffs. Um, he's you know given a lot of interviews where like he just says like you know change man, different coach. Uh, true. So like they really need Mbamute though. They they need that extra player. Like so it's not just the stars that are playing all these minutes. Is the thing like like the, your seventh man only played thirteen minutes. PJ Tucker played forty four minutes. Like that that's something that is really hard to sustain. So I was like. I feel like you're going to see this as early as like the second half of of game five here, especially if, like Chris says, the the Warriors go back to their style where they're moving on these off ball screens, they're making you chase them around, and like the the Rockets have shown, like, oh yeah, like we have trouble just like following basic offensive you know patterns on defense from time to time. You're better, and so like if you're going back to the the Warrior style, yeah, I, I feel I feel like the the Rockets are going to have a hard time. Uh, playing playing a rotation like that and keeping up with the Warriors if the Warriors play as they as they can. What I will say about all that, um, I, I didn't see it coming. Obviously, I think a lot of figured, especially after that start in Game Four, that not even just the start, but then the the onslaught in the third quarter where the Warriors generally just you know kind of land that knockout punch that they it seemed like they'd landed in Game Four. Um, the Warriors could be in real trouble if, if Clay isn't right and if Iguodala isn't back and healthy enough to really contribute because it does put them in a spot where all of a sudden, you know, Katie at times doesn't really know how to play within their team concepts. He does so much one-on-one stuff and he's so brilliant at it. I mean, Steph is, is the most important player here 
for them, um, at least as far as value goes. The fact that he was a plus 10 in the minutes he was on the floor, and just in the nine minutes he sat out that they got outscored by 13 points. Uh, this, this is telling you right there that they need him on the floor and they need to basically play the style that they play with him on the floor. When they're playing the style that Durant likes and that, you know, that he thrives with statistically, even at the end of the season when Steph wasn't there, they can score that way, but they're not the elite, elite scoring team that they are um, the same way because it doesn't always get other guys involved. And for a while in the series, he played like 75 minutes at the beginning of the series and only had two assists. And so you don't want to see them falling into that trap. And I wrote about that at the end of the season is that that was one of the things I was concerned about. Yes, they're still great with Kevin Durant, but their, their offensive style changes so much from what it normally is and should be when they have Steph on the court. So they can't fall into that trap, particularly if they're not having a normal ball handler, whether it's Steph or whether it's uh, Iguodala. If they're at full strength, I just see it being hard to beat them. But if they're nicked up and certain guys aren't playing, it does allow Houston more of an opportunity. And the other thing, this is in Houston. You know, we're not talking about that home court advantage because we just assume it's the Warriors. But, I mean, this is a great opportunity for, for Houston to kind of get this done. The fact that they're going back home, going into game five, Houston maybe having a chance to close this out in game six if they actually do do this at home. Okay, so having said all that, would each of you guys take the, the Rockets to win the series or are the Warriors still the favorites, do you think? I still have the Warriors. Yeah, I'm a coward. I can't do it. I mean, I, I just there, there are just too many sustainability questions about this. The style of play that the Rockets often use, although they've moved the ball much better lately, um, the minutes that you're asking guys that have been, uh, I don't know if you could call them minutes prone, but, you know, have kind of worn down. We all remember Harden last year in the series against the Spurs, just wearing down, and D'Antoni kind of putting these minutes on them. And the fact that, you know, the war, I, I tweeted during game four, uh, you know, this series may very well be over unless something really crazy happens. And then the Warriors shoot three of 18 in the fourth quarter, the worst shooting quarter they've had all season. That qualifies as crazy. Even if the Rockets prompted some of that with how well they're playing defense, that's probably not something that's going to repeat itself. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe Steph won't get as hot as he's gotten the last two games at time, and so Steph will balance out. But I just don't know that the Rockets are going to do quite enough Maybe they get one more game. Maybe it's game five that they get, and they take a 3-2 lead. But I just kind of feel like, generally speaking, unless something crazy has happened, the Warriors don't really fold. You know, it takes Draymond getting suspended, and it takes all sorts of other stuff happening that we're just not used to seeing, Steph not being at full strength. I just kind of trust them to do it, but we'll see if that faith is kind of placed in the right spot. I mean, there have been a couple games where Draymond has basically been begging to be thrown out, though. So, he so very we, much wanted it. Uh, what was it? Game <laughs> game two or, or yeah, some I think such? So. I yeah, think he so. in the first the like two one minutes in the first minute or two of the game. Yeah, yeah. and then was chewing for another one. Uh, but yeah, I, I I tend to tend to agree. Um, to to loop back around for a minute. Um, like the the Steph being the most important warrior is uh, is a very much like an analytics thing where that we've talked about throughout the season where his his effect on on teammates shooting percentages on the team's overall effectiveness uh, is just outsized compared to Durant's. Uh, even though Durant uh, as a unit is effective, you know, uh, playing one on one because he just shoots over, he just stands there, shoots, it's set shot, it's fine. Um, and it goes to like the order of operations thing also where. 
uh, it's fine to do that in the finals if it's like if the series is just slogged to a halt because uh, these two teams have scouted and know each other forever and uh, you need to you know just generate shots like as Kyrie Irving as LeBron James as Kevin Durant it, it makes less sense if uh, if there's a if there's another plan that you can go to uh, and you know kind of run the legs off of off of your opponent who might be on a short rotation. Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, shout out uh, quickly is like one of the, the like the more interesting stats I saw. So there was a big free throw disparity also in uh, Game Four, which you know, many many Warriors fans have uh, pointed out. Um, but uh, so you go to Rockets Reddit uh, and a user named Blueberry uh, like it took a little deeper dive and like in it I thought it was good. Uh, so I'm just gonna read from it a little bit. Uh, yesterday, the Rockets shot 20, uh, 27 free throw attempts to the Warriors 15. However, the fouls committed were 27 Golden State to 19 uh, Houston. And once you consider the intentional fouls the Warriors took on Hackett Capella and uh, one on Livingston at the end uh, that should have been let go, the gap goes to 23 to 15 free throws and 19 to 22 actually swings the other direction on fouls. So, um, you know, that's a, just another reason to think that uh, coming back home to to Houston, the Rockets, you know, probably can get uh, get one more out here. But uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd still take the the Warriors, you know, in aggregate. Uh, yeah, and that, and that point does go back to what we were saying about home court as it pertained to the Celtics. Also, that in the NBA, it's one of the strongest home court effects of any league uh, in you know kind of North American pro sports, and there's a reason for that. I don't know if it's officiating bias. I don't know if it's, you know, the home crowd firing people up. But there does seem to be something extra about playing at home in the NBA, uh, especially in the playoffs, that that gives you an extra boost. I mean, the one thing hopefully we can agree on because of the way this postseason has played out and because of what we saw in a a really interesting game four, if nothing else, let's just have at least one or two more close games before we get into the finals, which depending on who we get in the finals could be, kind of a, a bloodbath anyway. I mean, the fact that we've gone, we had obviously a very tight game for 95-92, kind of a back-and-forth, a really odd back-and-forth game where, like we said, Houston didn't score at the beginning, and then all of a sudden Houston pulled ahead, then Golden State went on their crazy run in the third, all for Houston to come back and win in the end. Uh, that was the first close game we'd seen really in two full weeks. Um, you know, on a playoff schedule, where we basically have games every night. You have to go all the way back to the game five, between the Celtics and the Sixers, uh, the, the series clincher there for Boston, to where we had a game that went into a clutch moment, meaning that the score was within five points in the last five minutes of play. You had to go all the way back to May 9th to have had the last game like that until we got to game four of Rockets-Warriors. And so just the, the long drought we've had where really these games, you know, maybe you, you, keep, you stay tuned in just because maybe something crazy happened. It's... It, 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 it's kind of lame in a way that we haven't had any competitive games. I think it probably speaks to a few things that Neil and I were talking about before the show. Uh, maybe just the role players stepping up in a different way at their home versus on the road. But just, you know, like, just cross your fingers for a good game. I, I don't even necessarily know that I care who wins, but let's just get a good game, at least one more good game before we go to the finals. Because I, I just feel like whoever wins this Western Conference Series is going to be such a heavy favorite once they get to the finals. That it'd be cool to see one more good game before we get to that stage. I mean, yeah, I agree. I want, like, I think everyone agrees that we've all wanted this series to be good all season long, but we are just days away, I think, from me introducing my, um, 
you know, objectionable opinions that uh, Boston should Boston advance out of this series uh, can put a scare or a little more than a scare into either of these teams. Okay, so you're going to bring that take uh, if, and oh, when, boy. if and when the Celtics <laughs> do emerge. So uh, keep it, keep a listen oh. out for that one uh, to all of our listeners out there. And uh, I think on that note, we're going to close up this week's show. We'll talk to you again early next week with even more playoff analysis and uh, we'll have some clarity or more clarity at least on who will be playing in those NBA finals by then. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Nina Ernest. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You can keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Kyle and Chris, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.